a journalist whose work is about looking at the long legacies of discrimination and how we think about ourselves in the present. Um, and I've spent the last two years almost in hibernation, like so many of us, working on a book about the origins of patriarchy. One theme that always seems to come up in my work, in my previous books, and this one, is how we cling to narratives about good and evil. Nothing really brought that home to me quite as vividly, though, as watching the statue of Edward Colston being ripped down by, by protesters in Bristol in the summer of 2020 and seeing it dragged into the harbour. People feel strongly about statues. I know because this is a debate I've often been drawn into myself professionally when it comes to renaming lecture theatres or in my work with museums. Um, but personally, I've always been suspicious of statues. In fact, I tend not to have any heroes at all. Um, and the reason for that is that I don't like the thought, the idea of elevating any human to that kind of status. Um, and the reason for this in turn, or one of the reasons, is that people almost always end up disappointing in one way or another. And I can tell you this because a lot of my time is spent looking deep into the histories of scientific and feminist heroes. Charles Darwin, let's take him. He held very deeply sexist views. He thought that women were the intellectual inferiors of men, uh, that we're even lower down on the evolutionary ladder. Virginia Woolf wrote in a diary entry how she felt people with severe intellectual disabilities should be killed. And I can't tell you how many celebrated American suffragists were deeply racist, willing to throw black women under the bus to see white women given the franchise first. When you look, there are in fact very few people in our history who are able to emerge from this kind of 21st century analysis with some stains on their biography in some way, or at least what we call stains. And even in our own time, we're so routinely disappointed and maybe more so because social media makes it easy to hear people's private unfiltered thoughts and share them around the world in a heartbeat. In the years before she passed away, and this is something people have asked me about my opinion, even the beloved Ruth Bader Ginsburg criticized Colin Kaepernick for refusing to stand for the national anthem before later apologizing. Now, I could go on for a very long time. I'm not here to categorize people into good and bad. The point I'm trying to make is that even though you've heard so many of these stories already, maybe you've already felt conflicted about someone you idolized, the challenge for us in these situations is to figure out what we do with the knowledge that people we respect are morally imperfect, that someone can inspire us on the one hand and oppress on the other, that they can see one person's suffering, but not someone else's. And it's that paradox that we find so hard to process. I sometimes think that part of the reason for this is maybe that we've been raised on fairy tales and fables that tell us that someone is either a good egg or they're a bad egg. They're either fresh or they're rotten. They can't be both. In that moral binary, we don't just judge individuals though. We also judge nations. We all have in our heads an idea of which countries are the good ones and which ones are the bad ones, the ones that occupy a different moral ground that we have an ethical problem with. In Britain, what's always surprised me is that this is a country so convinced 
that everyone in the world believes it is one of the good ones. Part of the tension we've seen around efforts to decolonize academia, to move statues or take them down, to broaden histories, to include the so-called bad bits, lies in the fact that so many Britons, at least in my experience, find it so hard to accept anything other than this narrative of good and evil in which Britain is good. It won the world wars. It fought against fascism. It overcame the bad guys. How can Britain not be the good one? The bad nations are over there. Germany, Russia, Saudi Arabia, China, they surely are the bad ones who've committed human rights abuses, who trample over rights. They're the ones who deserve to be judged. Britain is somehow beyond reproach. What we don't realize, or what some don't realize, is that in the rest of the world, outside Western Europe at least, Britain has never been seen this way. In countries colonized by the British, the British are the bad guys. In this fairy tale, they're the villains. They were the ones who trampled over rights and freedoms, who behaved unethically, who were cruel and vicious. India, where my parents were born, didn't thank Britain for colonizing it as much as some people would like to think that it did. In fact, I had a conversation with someone today who felt that way. It fought desperately for independence for decades. If you've lived in Asia or Africa or the Middle East, from that perspective, the British are the villains in the same way that for the British for a long time after the Second World War, and I think maybe in some people's imaginations even now, Germans were the villains. If any of you have seen the Bollywood movie Lagan, which is now more than two decades old, you'll have seen this narrative play out for yourselves. Now, if you don't know it, Lagan was this hugely popular, massively expensive film. It's set at the end of the 19th century, and it's about an arrogant British army officer who challenges a group of poor Indian villagers to a cricket match, telling them that if they win, they don't have to pay these enormous taxes that they owe the government, which they can't afford anyway. So these Indian villagers learn to play cricket and eventually win the game. It's an anti-colonial movie. I mean, it's set up that way right from the beginning, and it's quite obvious who the bad guys are. And of course, you will see British bad guys in other movies too, not just in India, but actually all over the world, including fairly often here in Hollywood. The moustache twirling upper class British villain is a trope in itself. And we have to ask ourselves why that is. Why is it that in Britain, there is so much reluctance among some, including this government, to see what to the rest of the world has always been so completely obvious, that as a colonial power that exploited so much of the world out of greed and racism, Britain is not morally perfect. Why are people afraid of that? How does a nation confront its moral imperfection? How does it reconcile its history with its self-image? Well, in the case of our current political leadership, the tendency has sometimes been to stick its head in the sand, to order museums, to leave statues exactly where they are, to even threaten to take away their funding, which it has done, to push back against so-called negative histories, to deny any hope of decolonization, to essentially pretend that Britain is pure, that it's a good egg, when of course bits of it 
have always been rotten. In a way, British Asians, Black Britons, and other minorities, we're well-placed to understand this. We live between cultures, we have to code switch. Our loyalties are tested when we watch international cricket matches. We live that moral complexity every day. And that's crucial to understanding why people like me sometimes feel so conflicted about being British, because we're trapped between two fairy tales, one in which Britain is the hero and the other in which Britain is the villain. And of course, we are British. I'm completely British. I want to feel proud of this country that I belong to. We all want to feel comfortable here. But it's impossible to do that under this strange cognitive dissonance. How can you do that in a state that asks you to choose just one fairy tale and pretend that it's the whole truth, to deny facts that you know to be true? Now, I'm someone who works inside the establishment sometimes as well as outside it. I sometimes consult for museums and scientific institutions and universities. And I see that nervousness, that desperate desire to maintain that fairy tale. Part of me sometimes wonders whether the intransigence of this government to even think about empire and its evils betrays a fear that starting down this road of writing history more fairly of confronting the mistakes of the past, a road that many other countries have already taken, including Germany and South Africa, even here in the US, they now commemorate Juneteenth as a federal holiday, marking the end of slavery, that doing this in Britain might somehow open Pandora's box. Then it would all come out. And then what? Then Britain might be left wondering for the first time whether it really hasn't been on the right side of history after all. I can understand that fear. No person, no people want to have their failures exposed. This maybe explains, I think, some of the panic around cancel culture, because in the public eye, people fear it so much, I wonder, because not just because of freedom of speech, because that's often the defense, but if they're honest, because deep down they fear that they might be next. And they really could be. In fact, any of us really could be, because as I said at the beginning, nobody is perfect. Good people are capable of bad things sometimes. That's the human condition. When we lionize individuals then, we forget their humanity. We ignore their complexity, something that's intrinsic to who they are. We don't allow them the space to reveal themselves or give them room to grow and become better. I can't help thinking whether nationalism in that sense is a kind of state level hero worship. It's like creating a statue, a memorial to the state. It's the same. It behaves as though a country is exceptional, beyond error, superhuman. And in doing that, nationalism runs a risk of failing to see that countries are morally complex as well. They too need to be recognized as they are by their citizens, not presented in some kind of airbrushed artificial version, but as they are with their rotten bits. That's not to say that we should forgive wrongs or brush them aside, but that we should see them. A healthy country is one that can see its history as it is, make amends for it in the present and be confident enough in itself to say, we're not perfect, but we can do better 
And the only way that really happens is by confronting the facts, not shying away from them, from looking at all these tales, all these narratives, not just clinging to one of them. If we can't do that, people get suspicious. It's like the picture of Dorian Gray. Something doesn't seem right. It's odd. In that bargain with the devil, in which we pretend that everything is fine, that history is completely rosy, that's where the rot starts to spread. And these days, I start to worry that it already has. The nationalism we see in Britain now, the government-sanctioned, head-in-the-sand type of nationalism, living in this imaginary past, is unsustainable now. Because even if it's possible to maintain that illusion that the apple isn't rotten for a while, you can't do it forever. Sooner or later, people will notice the smell and they'll start to ask, what are you trying to hide? They're already asking that. When they tear down statues, that is them asking. 